We can basically baselessly speculate. It's our no, show. Oh no. Uh the US Open just means that it's open to anyone. Like I could show up for uh with a a a racket and they would let me play. I might get destroyed, but I think you have to qualify. <laughs> you sure you're ready to go? Molly yeah. lost her voice yesterday. I lost my voice last night, but I think I can do it. Yeah. I request uh regular moments where I can sip the hot toddy that I have made. Yes. In an effort to battle my throat problems. Uh, we have to pod. We must pod. And the, pod the pod must go I on. Lo- I honestly love having a, a voice that sounds like this, but it's very inconvenient. Yes. For talking. For talking. I, we literally had to leave a party last night because I lost my voice. <laughs> Molly's like, I can't talk anymore. We have to go. <laughs> so you, you steered me to someone and, and was like, Molly, talk to them about Bono. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like, got a, did you? Did you yeah, because yeah, they, they were and intro fans. And oh, had, I didn't even real. I didn't realize and that they had. Uh, they were they had Bono thoughts. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I waxed. <laughs> you waxed about Bono. All you all your unpoetically about Bono, and that might have been the nail in the coffin. Spoiler alert for the next and intro. Yeah. If we're, I'm trying to work through his Dickensian density book. <laughs> the Bono hopefully book. Hopefully before the end of the year. Yes. Well, let's look forward to some some hot fresh Bono content on some other. Yeah. On other channels. <laughs> yeah. All right, should we uh should we read this? Mm-hmm. We we finally we finished Don's hospital uh moment. for now. For now. Yeah. Okay. The next time we see him he's not going to be out of the hospital. <laughs> but we're moving away. But okay. let's do it and I could see how well I do. Okay, great. <clears throat> 19th 19th November year of the depend adult undergarment. After Remy Morath and also weak and Bob Elise also they all reported back negatively for all signs of this veiled performer. M40A and Marath threw into an effect this finally most drastic of the operations for the locating of the master entertainment. This was to acquire members of the immediate family of the O'Tour, perhaps in public. Marath was charged with this operation's details, for M. Prime was now thrust into technical trouble killing on the further field tests of viewer willingness. For one of the newly acquired test subjects, this was an eccentrically dressed and extremely irritating without home man of the streets uh, in a white wig uh, appropriated with large bags filled with foreign uh, of foreign cookware and extremely small in size ladies undergarments was discovered to have been severing and pushing beneath the room of storage's closed door the severed digits of the second of the newly acquired test subjects. This was a mistressed and severely weakened or addicted man dressed in the clothing of a gauche woman, carrying multiple purses of suspicious nature rather than his own digits, barring the statistics of Bream's field experiment to such the extent that M4DA was forced to consider whether or to allow Bream to connect, conduct a lethal technical interview of the wigged substituter of digits for reasons of anger only. Substantially, a technical interview of more importance was to be conducted in the city Phoenix, far across the U.S. to the south, a city's name Fortier had amusement from and departed before incoming weather to attend Mademoiselle Luria P. In this conducting, leaving the trusted Remy Morath to charge uh, details of the preliminary acquisition. Morath, who had made his decision and call, and call, did what he could. A direct assault upon the Academy of Tennis itself was impossible. <laughs> AFRs fear nothing in this hemisphere except tall and steep hillsides <laughs> their attack must not be direct thus the preliminary was to acquire and replace the tennis children of quebec 
known by the AFR to be even then en route to USA soil for gala competition with the tennis children of this academy. Morass selected young Balbalese, the, the tennis one, children. The tennis children. Young Balbalese, the one still with both the legs, albeit paralyzed and stickishly withered them, to lead the AFR field detail, which must intercept the provincial players. Morath, he... Yeah. Well, please interrupt no, me. No, no, keep going. No, keep I going. need to take a drink. Oh, okay. Uh, so so uh, poor Tony cut off some other guy's fingers to try to get out of... Randy cut off poor Tony's fingers. Randy cut off poor Tony's finger, fingers. Asshole. To try to get out of the uh, watching the entertainment or... Uh, just do it. They're do, testing the uh, efficacy of the entertainment by saying, if you wish to continue watching it, you need to cut off one finger at a time. Ah. Uh, be like, all right, another hour of entertainment. One finger, please. And he's like, totally. And then he gave him the other guy's fingers. Ah, yes. Dick. So, sorry, it's a combination of the French syntax and the your, your voice is making it a little difficult to follow. I'm happy to do further explanation. Okay, great. Um, uh, Marath, he stayed at the Cambridge shop of the Antitois withdrawing frequently to the jazz nights uh, nearby of Ryle's restaurant. Balbalese drove the modified van of Dodge north into the increasingly heavy snowstorm. They bypassed the Pongo checkpoint at Methuen, Massachusetts. They would place a large mirror in the deserted road and delude the tennis bus that it must leave the road to avoid impact. Its own headlights would delude it, an old FLQ trick. Two teams in the van's back assembled the mirror's components. Balbalese would not allow to stop for this assembly. The snowfall was worse in the convexity because of the fans to the south. What used to be Montpelier in Vermont lay between EWD grids, but took bad fallout from the region of Champlain and was unoccupied and ghostly white with snow. Balbalese permitted at Montpelier a brief stop for final assembly and for those who were incontinent to change their bags. Balbalese pressed hard to the former place of St. Johnsbury, where the mirror was installed across the southbound lanes of the U.S. Interstate 91. Balbalese did not complain that there were no tracks in the snow of the road to be followed. He never complained. They arrived well early just south of the checkpoint, at which provincial auto route 55 became the Interstate 91. There was a brief period of the tension when it appeared that the night vision attachment for the binoculars had been misplaced. Balbalese remained cool, and it was located. <laughs> the plan was to intercept the traveling team of players and allow AFRs to arrive at the place in their stead. Morath promised to conceive an excellent ruse to explain the wheelchairs and adult beards of the false players. There was no smoking in the van while they waited for the children tennis players of their country to appear at the checkpoint. The bus was forced to remain at the checkpoint for several minutes. The bus was large and chartered and appeared warm within. Above its windshield, its lit rectangle of destination displayed the English word for charter. If the bus survived the swerve from the highway's mirror and was operational after the crash of swerving, Balbalese would drive this bus. There was one brief argument over who would be required to drive the van, for Balbalese refused to leave the van behind them, even if the bus was operational. If the bus was not operational, no more than six junior children as survivors could be accommodated in the van. The rest would be allowed to die for le rey pays. Balbalese, he showed no preference one or the other way. <laughs> They're about to let a bunch of Quebecois t- tennis players die in the snow. Oh. It's awful. Well, look, patriotism, requir- patriotism requires sacrifices. 
hey, you know, I uh, spike through the eye, uh, hearing the squeak, yada, yada. But I draw the line at children. Yes, killing killing tennis children. Yeah, and tennis. <laughs> Not only disrespecting children, but tennis? All right, we're back with Gately. Oh, okay. Gately dreamed he was with Ennett House resident Joel Van Dyne in a southern motel whose restaurant's authoritarian sign said simply eat in the U.S. South in high summer. Brutally hot. The H's are start tripping me up. Should I uh, pronounce them without? Oh, brutally hot. Brutally hot. The foliage outside the room's broken. Actually, that sounds pretty good. Broken window screen. A parched khaki. The air glassy with heat. The ceiling fan rotating at a second hand's rate. The room's bed, a lavish four-poster. Tall and squishy. The bedspread nubbly. Gately supine with his side on fire. While newcomer Joel VD raises her veil slightly to lick the sweat off his lids and temples, whispering so the veil flutters around and fans him, promising a p.m. of near-terminal pleasures, undressing at the foot of the old tall bed. Slowly, her loose light clothes moist with sweat and falling easily to the bare floor, and an incredible female body, an inhuman body, the sort of body Gately's only ever seen with a staple in its navel, a body like something you'd win in a raffle, <laughs> and a fifth post forms on the four-poster, so to speak. Get out, <laughs> shut up. Gross. Which erect post's long dormant height obscures the nude newcomer's figure, and then when she moves around out of the pulsing shadow to lean in close, and press her inhuman body's face right up intimately close to his. She removes the veil, and on top of this body to die for is the unveiled historical likeness of fucking Winston Churchill, complete with cigar and jowls and bulldog scowl, and the gasoliness of the shock makes the rest <laughs> of Gately's body go rigid, the pain of which wakes him with a jolted attempt to sit up that itself causes such a blast of pain that he half passes back out again and lies there with rolling eyes and a round mouth. Gately's also powerless over memories of the older type lady that had been their neighbor when he and his mother shared a bed and board with the MP, a Mrs. Waite. There was no Mr. Waite. The smeared window of the little empty garage the MP kept his weights in was right next to the spiny, neglected garden Mrs. Waite kept in the narrow strip uh, right uh, between the two houses. Mrs. Waite's house had been, shall we say, indifferently maintained. <laughs> Mrs. Waite's house had made the Gately house look like the Taj. <laughs> there was something wrong about Mrs. Waite. None of the parents said what it was, but none of the kids were allowed to play in her yard or ring her bell on Halloween. Gately never got clear on what was supposed to be wrong about her, but the poor little the little poor neighborhood psyche throbbed with something dire about Mrs. Waite. Older kids drove across her lawn and shouted shit that Gately never quite made out at night. The little kid, littler kids thought they had it. They were pretty sure Mrs. Waite was a witch. Yes, she did look a little witchy, but who over like 50 didn't? <laughs> but the big thing was she kept jars of stuff she jarred herself in her little garage. Brown, green, viscous, nameless, vegetoid stuff in mayonnaise jars stacked on steel shelves and rusty, lidded, red, and bearded with dust. The littler kids snuck in and broke some of the jars and stole one and ran away in mortal terror to break it elsewhere and then uh, run again. They dared each other to ride their bikes in tiny diagonals across the edge of her lawn. They told each other stories of seeing Mrs. Waite in a pointy hat roasting <laughs> missing kids whose pictures were on milk cartons. 
fists and pouring the juice into jars. <laughs> Some of the bigger littler kids even tried that inevitable gag of putting a paper bag full of dog shit on her stoop and lighting it. It was somehow a further indictment of Mrs. Waite that she never complained. She rarely left her house. Mrs. Gately would never say uh, what was wrong about Mrs. Waite, but absolutely forbade Dawn to fuck with her in any way. Like Mrs. Gately was in any position to enforce like any forbiddings. Uh, uh, sorry, enforce any like forbiddings. Gately never fucked with Mrs. Waite's stored jars or rode across her lawn and never much joined in on the witch stories, which who needed witches to fear and despise when you had the good old MP right there at the kitchen table. <laughs> but he was still scared of her. When he'd once seen her gnarly-eyed face up against the smeared garage window 1 p.m. when he had left the MP to beating Mrs. Gately and gone out to lift weights, he screamed and almost dropped the bench press bar on his Adam's apple. But over the long haul of a low-stimulation North Shore childhood, he gradually developed a slight relationship with Mrs. Waite. He never all that much liked her. It wasn't like she was this lovable but misunderstood old lady. It's not like he ran to her dilapidated house to confide in her or bond. But he went over once or twice, maybe, under circumstances he'd forgot, and had sat in her kitchen, interfaced a little. She was lucid, Mrs. Waite, and apparently continent, and there was no pointy hat anywhere in sight, but her house smelled bad, and Mrs. Waite herself had swollen, veiny ankles and little white bits of that dried paste at the corners of her mouth, and about a million newspapers stacked and mildewing all over the kitchen, and the old lady basically radiated whatever mixture of unpleasantness and vulnerability it was that made you want to be cruel to people. Gately was never cruel to her, but it's not like he loved her or anything. When Gately went over there the couple times, it was mostly when the MP was canning chowder, and his mother had passed out in vomit she expected somebody else to clean up, and he probably wanted to act out his kid's anger by doing something Mrs. Jeed practically, pathetically tried to forbid. He didn't eat much of whatever Mrs. Waite offered. She never offered him viscous material from a jar. <laughs> His memories of whatever they discussed are unspecific. She hung herself eventually, Mrs. Waite, as in eliminated her own map. And because it was fall and cool, she wasn't found for maybe weeks after. It wasn't Gately who found her. A meter reader guy found her several weeks after Gately's eighth or ninth birthday. Gately's birthday was the same week as several other kids in the neighborhoods, by some chance. Usually, Gately'd have his party over with some of the other kids that were having their par par birthdays with a party. Hats and Twister, X-Men videos, cake on Chinette plates, etc. Mrs. Gately was together enough to come a couple times. <laughs> In retrospect, the other kids' parents let Gately have birthdays with them because they'd felt sorry for him, he'd involuntarily realized. But at some sober neighbor's party, part of which was for his own 8th or ninth birthday, he remembers how Mrs. Waite had left her house and come rung the sober neighbor's bell and had brought a birthday cake for the birthday. A neighborly gesture. Gately spilled the beans. Yep. Canceled. Can't bring, can't bring food to a bring neighbor's food without to your their neighbor. consent. It's not chilly. That's not chilly. Don't bring, don't, don't bring neighbor cakes. <laughs> don't bring neighbor cakes. That's, uh, that's imperialism. I didn't even ca catch what the argument was there. It's ableism to assume that the um to assume what kind of food to bring them, mm -hmm. and also you know like rude and uh, imposing. Imposing. If anyone ever did that to me, I would freak out. Uh, it's it's white supremacist, maybe. Probably, chili. Chili. And then I saw someone being like, "Why did you use bell peppers in chili?" It's like because <laughs> they're good. Yes. I would argue a chili practically calls for some kind of bell pepper. 
I always put green bell peppers in my chili. Yeah. Ooh. Kate Leeds spilled the beans on the annual mass party. Spilled your beans. <laughs> at a kitchen table interface with her. The cake was uneven and slightly tilted to one side, but it was dark chocolate and decorated with four cursive names and had clearly been made with care. Mrs. Waite had spared Gately the humiliation of putting just his name on the cake as if the cake was made especially for him, but it was. Mrs. Waite had saved up for a long time to afford to make the cake, Gately knew. He knew she smoked like a chimney and had given up cigarettes for weeks to save up for something. She wouldn't tell him what. She tried to make her scary eyes twinkle when she wouldn't tell but he'd seen the mayonnaise jar full of quarters on a pile of papers and had wrestled with himself over promoting it and won. <laughs> but there were only like nine candles on the cake when the party's mom brought it in, and a couple of the kids having birthdays were like, 12 was the private tip-off on who the cake was really for. The party's mom had taken the cake at the door and said thank you, but had neglected to invite Mrs. Waite in. Aww. Gately was in a position during Twister in the garage to see Mrs. Waite walking back home across the street, slowly but very straightly and dignified and upright. A lot of the kids went to the garage door to look. Mrs. Waite had rarely been seen outside her house before and never off her property. The sober mom brought the cake in the garage and said it was a touching gesture from Mrs. Waite across the street, but she wouldn't let anybody eat the cake or even come close enough to blow out the nine candles. The candles didn't all match. The candles burned down far enough so that there was a smell of burnt frosting before they went out. The cake sat tilted by itself in a corner of the clean garage. Gately didn't defy the sober mom or any of the kids and eat a piece of cake. He didn't even go near it. He didn't join in the de uh, delicious, whispery arguments about what kind of medical waste or roasted kid ren renderings were in the cake. But he didn't stand up and argue with the other kids about the fact of the poisoning either. Before the party climaxed and the other kids that had got presents opened their presents, the sober mom had taken the cake into the kitchen when she thought nobody was watching, and threw it out in the wastebasket. Gately remembers the cake must have landed upside down because the unfrosted side was facing up in the wastebasket when he snuck in and had a look at the cake. Mrs. Waite had disappeared back inside her house way before the mom threw the cake away. There's no way she could have seen the mom take the uneaten cake back inside the house. A couple days later, Gately had promoted a couple packs of Benson & Hedges 100s from a store 24 and put them in Mrs. Waite's mailbox where junk mail and utility bells, bills were already piling up. He sometimes rang the bell, but never saw her. Her bell had been a buzzer instead of a bell, he remembers. She got found by a frustrated meter reader some indefinite number of weeks after that. Oh my God. The circumstances of her death and discovery became more dark myth for the littler kids. Gately wasn't uh, into uh, so into self-torture to think that the cake not getting eaten and getting thrown out was in any way connected with Mrs. Waite hanging herself. Everybody had their own private troubles, Mrs. Gately had explained to him. And even at that age, he could see her point. It's not like he'd mourned Mrs. Wade or missed her or even thought about her even once for many years after that. I need to take a, a toddy break. Uh, it's a sad story. Mm -hmm. It's bumming me out. Sorry. That's okay. All right. What which is what makes it worse somehow that his next even more unpleasant Joel Van Dyne pain and fever dream takes place in what is unmistakably and unavoidably Mrs. Waite's kitchen in great detail, right down to the ceiling's light fixture full of dried bugs, the brimming ashtrays, the bar graph of stacked globes, the maddening arrhythmic drip of the kitchen sink and the bad smell, a mixture of mildew and putrid, putrid fruit. 
Gately is in the ladder back kitchen chair he used to sit in, the one with one rung broken, and Mrs. Waite is in her chair opposite, seated on the thing he thought then was a weird pink donut instead of a hemorrhoid pillow, <laughs> except in the dream Gately's feet reach all the way to rest on the floor's dank tile, and Mrs. Waite is played by veiled UHID house resident Joelle Van D, except without her veil, and what's more, without any clothes, as in Starkers, gorgeous, with that same incredible body as in the other one, except here, this time with the face not of a jowly British PM, but of a total female angel, not sexy so much as angelic, like all the world's light had somehow uh, had gotten together and arranged itself into the shape of a face or something. It looks like somebody, Joelle's face, but Gately can't for the life of him place who, and it's not the, just the distraction of the inhumanly gorgeous naked bod below, because the dream is not like a sex dream. Because in this dream, Mrs. Waite, who is Joelle, is death, as in the figure of death, death incarnate. Nobody comes right out and says so, it's just understood. Gately's sitting here in this depressing kitchen, interfacing with death. Death is explaining that death happens over and over. You have many lives, and at the end of each one, meaning life, is a woman who kills you and releases you into the next life. Gately can't quite make out if it's like a monologue, or if he's asking questions and she's responding in a Q&A deal. Death says that this certain woman that kills you is always your next life's mother. This is how it works. Didn't he know? In the he, dream... He dreamed about this before, right? Um, the... Uh, who said it? J-O-I? I think so. Um, I think... Well, talk to him in his head. Yes. Mm. The woman who kills you is your next life's mother. Yes. In the dream, everybody in the world seems to know this except Gately like he'd missed that day in school when they covered it. <laughs> and so Death's having to sit here, naked and angelic, and explain it to him very patiently, more or less like remedial reading at Beverly H.S. Death, says the woman, who either knowingly or involuntarily kills you, is always someone you love, and she's always your next life's mother. This is why moms are so obsessively loving, why they try so hard, no matter what private troubles or issues or addictions they have of their own, why they seem to value your welfare above their own, why there's always a slight, like, twinge of selfishness about their obsessive mother love. They're trying to make amends for a murder neither of you quite remember, except maybe in dreams. As death's explanation of death goes on, Gately understands really important vague stuff more and more, but the more he understands, the sadder he gets. And the sadder he gets, the more unfocused and wobbly becomes his vision of the death's Joel sitting nude on the pink plastic ring, until near the end, it's as if he's seeing her through a kind of cloud of light, a milky filter that's the same as the wobbly blur through which a baby sees a parental face bending over its crib. And he begins to cry in a way that hurts his chest and asks death to set him free and be his mother. And Joelle uh, either shakes or nods her lovely unfocused head and says, wait. That's that. That's that. How long is this next segment? I feel like we might cut it early. Or a three and a half pages. How what long have we been? We're at 23 minutes. Um, do you want to go one more segment? Yeah, let's try it. Okay. I believe it's first person Hal, shockingly. Wow. 20th November year, the dependent all undergarment, Gaudiamus E.G. Tour. I was in a zoo. There were no animals or cages, but it was still a zoo. It was close to a nightmare, and it woke me up before 0500 hours. Mario was still asleep, gently lit by the window's view of tiny lights down the hill. He lay very still and soundless as always, his poor hands folded on his chest, as if awaiting a lily. <laughs> I put in a plug of Kodiak. 
His four pillows brought Mario's chin to his chest when he slept. I was still producing excess saliva, and my one pillow was moist in a way I didn't want to turn on a light and investigate. I didn't feel good at all, a sort of nausea of the head. The feeling seemed worse first thing in the morning. I'd felt for almost a week as if I'd needed to cry for some reason, but the tears were somehow stopping just millimeters behind my eyes and staying there, and so on. I got up and went past the foot of Mario's bed to the window to stand on one foot. Sometime during the night, heavy snow had begun to fall. I had been ordered by Delin and Barry Loach to stand on the left foot for 15 minutes a day as therapy for the ankle. The countless little adjustments necessary to balance on one foot worked muscles and ligaments in the ankle that were therapeutically unreachable any other way. I always felt sort of dickish standing on one foot in the dark with nothing to do. <laughs> the snow on the ground had a purple cast to it, but the falling and whirling snow was virgin white, yachting cap white. <laughs> I stood on my left foot for maybe five minutes tops. The boards and APs, which takes us to EndNote 344, ETSs, which is a subnote, Educational Testing Service, Inc., uh, Prince, New Jersey, advanced placement standardized subject tests where Hal and Condensus signed up to take in English and Parisian French. <laughs> Back to the text. Boards and APs were three weeks from tomorrow at 0800 in the CBS, which takes us to NO3045, the College of Basic Studies building on Commonwealth and Granby, approximately three clicks east-southeast of ETA. Back to the text. CBS Auditorium at BU. I could hear a night custodial crew rolling a mop bucket somewhere on another floor. This was to be the first a.m. without dawn drills since Interdependence Day, and everybody was invited to sleep in until breakfast. There were to be no classes all weekend. I'd awakened too early yesterday, too. I'd kept seeing Kevin Bain crawling my way in my sleep. <laughs> I straightened up my bed and put the pillows wet side down and put on clean sweatpants and some socks that didn't smell foul. The closest Mario comes to snoring is a thin sound he makes at the back of his throat. The sound is as if he's drawing out the word key over and over. It's not an unpleasant sound. I estimated a good 50 centimeters of snow on the ground, and it was really coming down. In the purple half-light, the west quartz nets were half-buried. Their top halves shuddered in a terrible wind. All over the sub-dormitory, I could hear doors rattling slightly in their frames, as they only did in a bad wind. The wind gave the snowfall a swirling, diagonal aspect. Snow was hitting the exterior of the window with a sandy sound. The basic view outside the window was that of a briskly shaken paperweight, the kind with the Xmas diorama and shakeable snow. The grounds, trees, fences, and buildings looked toy-like and miniaturized somehow. In fact, it was hard to distinguish new snow falling from extant snow simply whirling around in the wind. It only then occurred to me to wonder whether and where we would play today's exhibition meet. The lung wasn't yet up, but the 16 courts under the lung wouldn't have accommodated more than an A-only meet anyway. A kind of cold hope flared in me because I realized this could be cancellation weather. <laughs> oh my God, don't I know it. The backlash of this hope was an even worse feeling than before. I couldn't remember ever actively hoping not to have to play before. I couldn't remember feeling strongly one way or another about playing for quite a long time, in fact. Mario and I had begun to make a practice of keeping the phone's console's power on at night but turning off the ringer. The console's digital recorder had a light that pulsed once for each incoming message. The double flash of the recorder's light set up an interesting interference pattern with the red battery light on the ceiling smoke detector, the two lights flashing in sync on every seventh phone flash, <laughs> and then moving slowly apart in a visual Doppler. 
a formula for the temporal relation between two unsyncopated flashes would translate spatially into the algebraic formula for an ellipse, I could see. <laughs> Hemulus had poured a terrific volume of practical pre-boards math into my head for two weeks, taking his own time and not asking for anything in return, being almost suspiciously generous about it. Then, since the Wayne debacle, the little tutorials had ceased, and Pemulus himself had been very scarce, twice missing meals, and several times taking the truck for long periods without checking with any of the rest of us about our truck needs. <laughs> I didn't even try to factor in the single, the rapid single flash of the phone's power unit display on the side of the TP. This would make it some sort of calculus thing, and even Pemulus had conceded that I was not hardwired for anything past algebra and conic sections. <laughs> Hold on, let me let me have a sip. Conic sections. Math. Do high schoolers really need to learn calculus? Mm -hmm. Is that something you have to learn in high school? I feel like algebra is useful in everyday calculations, you know, in like figuring out, you, like you need it to like quantitatively reason with the world, yeah. but you really don't need calculus. I don't it's remember pretty, how any of that It's pretty advanced, works. and I certainly don't need it in any of my everyday I'm not saying lifestyle yeah. as, a, as a liberal arts person. Yeah, you might... You might encounter in your life the need to solve for X mm -hmm. in certain situations. Mm -hmm. I will never need to find the slope of a curve at a given point in my in my day-to-day -day life. I would I would agree. Yes. Every November between I Day and the Whataburger Invitational in Tucson AZ, the Academy holds a semi-public exhibition meet for the benefit of ETA's patrons and alumni and friends in the Boston area. The exhibition is followed by a semi-formal cocktail party and dance in the dining hall, where players are required to appear showered and semi-formal and available for social intercourse with patrons. Some of them all but check our teeth. <laughs> Last year, Heath Pearson had appeared for the gala in a red vest and bellboy's cap and furry tail, carrying a little organ and inviting patrons to grind the organ while he capered around, chattering. <laughs> CT was unamused. The whole fundraiser is a Charles Tavis innovation. CT is far better at public relations and pump priming than was himself. The exhibition and gala are possibly the climax of CT's whole administrative year. He determined that mid-November was the best time for a fundraiser, with the weather not yet bad and the tax year drawing to a close, but the U.S. holiday season, with its own draining system of demands on goodwill, not yet underway. For the past three fiscal years, the fundraiser's proceeds have all but paid for the spring's Southeast tour and the European Terre Battue Fest of June and July. <laughs> the exhibition meet involved both genders A and B teams and was always against some foreign junior squad to give the whole fundraising affair a patriotic kicker. The gentle fiction was that the meet was just one stop for the foreign squad on a whole vague US, uh, general U.S. tour. But in truth, CT usually flew the foreigners in special and at some expense. We had in the past done battle with teams from Wales, Belize, the Sudan, and Mozambique. Cynics might point to an absence of tennis juggernauts among the opponents. Last year's Mozambique thing was a particular turkey shoot, 72, and there had been an ugly xeno-racist mood about some of, sorry, <laughs> among some of the spectators and patrons a couple of whom cheerily compared the meat to Mussolini's tanks rolling over oh, Ethiopian God. spear chuckers. God. I know. YDAU's opponents were to be the Quebec Junior Davis and Junior Whiteman uh, Cup teams, and their arrival from MIA Dorval, uh, which takes us to NO346, Montreal International Airport Dorval, Cartierville Airport now being restricted to intra-Quebec flights only. Back to the text. 
Uh, it was keenly anticipated by Strzok and Freer, who claimed that the Quebecois junior white men girls were normally sequestered and saw very few co-ed venues and would be available for broadening intercultural relations of all kinds. It was improbable that anything was going to be landing on time at Logan in this kind of snow, though. The wind also produced a desolate moaning in all the ventilation ducts. Mario said key and sometimes ski, drawing them out. It occurred to me that without some one-hitters to be able to look forward to smoking alone in the tunnel, I was waking up every day feeling as though there were nothing in the day to anticipate or lend anything, any meaning. I stood on one foot for a couple more minutes, spitting into a coffee can I'd left on the floor uh, near the phone from the night before. The implied question then would be whether the Bob Hope had somehow become not just the high point of the day, but its actual meaning. That would be pretty appalling. The pen four that was my hand strengthening ball for November was on the sill uh, against the window. I'd neither carried nor squeezed my ball for several days. No one seems to have noticed. Mm. Mario cedes me full control over the phone's ringer and answering machines since he has trouble holding the receiver and the only messages he ever gets are in-house ones from the moms. I enjoyed leaving different outgoing messages on the machine, but I refused ever to back the messages with music or digitally altered bits of entertainment. None of the ETA phones uh, was video capable. Another CT decision. Under the CT, the Academy's manual of honor codes, rules, and procedures had almost tripled in length. Probably our room's best message ever was Orthostice doing his deadly CT impression, taking 80 seconds to list possible reasons why Mario and I couldn't answer the phone and outlining our probable reactions to all possible caller emotions provoked by our unavailability. But at 80 seconds, the thing wore thin after a while. Our, outgo <laughs> our outgoing this week was something like, this is the disembodied voice of Hal and Condensa, whose body is not now able, and so on, and then the standard invitation to leave a message. It was honesty and abstinence week, after all, and this seemed a more truthful message to leave than the pedestrian, this is Hal and Condensa, since the caller would pretty obviously be hearing a digital recording of me rather than me. This observation owed a debt to Pemulus, who for years and with several different roommates has retained the same recursive message. This is Mike Pemulus's answering machine's answering machine. Mike Pemulus's answering machine regrets being available to take a first order message for Mike Pemulus. But if you'll leave a second order message at the sound of the clapping hand, Mike Pemulus's answering machine will, and so on, which is worn so thin that very few of Pemulus's friends or customers can abide waiting through the general tired thing to leave a message, which Pemulus finds congenial since no really relevant caller would be fool enough to leave his name on any machine of Pemulus's anyway. <laughs> so that's it. All right. I think that that is a good segment. Please commit a crime. You, that's, that's what you're supposed to do when you call Pemulus for drugs. Please commit a crime. Please commit a crime. Uh, so, uh, are we to take that Hal has maybe finally made it to his NA meeting and is uh, giving a first person uh, speech? I would have no. I think he's just thinking. I think he's just thinking because I think he's the memory of um, the inner child meeting is still fresh and he has nothing to replace it with. Mm. It's like been a week since he's quit. Yes, he doesn't have any of the lingo about coming in and yes, you know, giving it up. Yes. Uh, and mom's, your mother is the woman who killed you in a past life. Certainly does explain a lot, doesn't it? Does, it? it does explain a lot. Man, being a mom is tough. Mm. It's like one of the hardest things mm -hmm. in the world. Yeah, that's, that's the tea, says. Yeah. If you're listening to this, go call your mom. Call, call your mother. 
It's time you had a... But it's also difficult having a mother, you know? That's the problem, is that uh, all moms want to do is love their kids. and All the kids are like, Mom, stop. Stop. Uh. Uh, Yes. And then, and coming to terms with that is one of the the big works of life. And that's the big, yeah, that's the big thing, because you do owe her quite a debt for growing you. Yes, and, and you only realize more and more you. over time the, the, bur- the burden that you have caused her. Yes, and all she can do is be like, "Nope, best decision of my life. Great, never anything yes. greater." And uh, that is the delusion. Have you noticed that every time we like talk to? Oh, parents. Talk to, oh like God. our new parents. Yeah, that our they're new like, parent friends. It sucks. It sucks. I, I hate it. I hate it. Like, kill me. Put I'm a gun in tired. my mouth. I'm tired. I can't. Like, I want to strangle this child. I'm so unbelievably imbalanced. I can't do anything on my own. I'm co- yeah. beleaguered. I'm constantly, my my time, my Every energy. Every moment is pain. It's I'm being drained. And it's the best thing in the world. It's the best. It's oh, so great. And you guys must do it. It's uh, Yes. It's, yeah. Uh, it's very funny. Yeah. That's the... That's the joke of life. The joke f- of life is that yeah, it sucks, and then you make someone else do it, too. Yes, exactly. Uh, and with the minute hope, I mean, I guess if you're conscious about it, or I guess the way that I'm thinking is that you can make, maybe make things go slightly better for them. Yeah. Even if things went pretty well for you. Or, you and can figure out ways that to you me, can do things slightly better. To me, the thing is you give the gift of unconditional love, which yes. is something that is you can't manufacture it. You mm-hmm. can't buy it. And the best place it can come from is your parents. Yes. Conditional love is the most powerful thing in the universe. And one of the hardest parts about it is that you cannot, by any means, return it. Uh, Not in the way that it needs to be. No. Um, Yeah, it's pretty dark. Yeah. Life is pain. Life is pain. But boy, that's why you drink. But it's beautiful. (laughs) That's why you drink or smoke the hope. Smoke the hope. Or, uh, you know, um, do other uh, addictive type things. Yeah. do you think what do you think uh it, it's too it's too bad that david foster wallace didn't uh, live long enough to hear the uh the 10 years ago we had <laughs> jobs hope and cash yeah uh right abandon all hope abandon all all hope you enter here it's strange him writing about mrs Waite that he eventually did he did the same thing as her yeah Created the, his own tragic story. It is true. Brother Stewart do, do, do you think he baked somebody a cake that was unappreciated? No. Before that? It's like, well, it your penthouse. I can't believe it happened to me. The uh, Mrs. Waite cake story is giving. Um, what's the song where you left the cake MacArthur out in the Park, rain? Of course. MacArthur. And I'll never taste that recipe again. again. Yes, of course. Again. (laughs) 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 Um, That song's a banger, though. What do you make of the cake story? I mean, it's just... Just more sad shit. Well, it's Don. Don is the hero of inaction, right? Is like, he doesn't... um, He doesn't make fun of her, but he doesn't defend her. No. And he spends time with her. Yes. Which is like the biggest gift of all. And that the fact that then she... Did, made Tries this gesture cake um, that is not taken from him. Yeah, but do you let your child eat the cake that this the strange woman who lives across the street baked? I might take a. I think. What do you do as a mom? You take a bite first. Take a bite first. To see if it's poisoned. Yes. If it didn't like, I don't know. It's it's cake. It's, it's when cake. it went in the oven. Is like, it cake? <laughs> is it cake? Uh, yes. It, it it was cooked. I mean, listen, I understand, you know, yeah. if someone has like a gross house, you don't want to like eat their food, but you know, it, I don't know. It went in the oven. It got hot. Yes. All the germs probably baked out of I it. I think it's fine. I would have a bite of it and then give it to, to uh, I will eat, I will eat Mrs. Waite's cake. I will eat Mrs. Waite's cake. Yeah. Sound off in the comments if you would eat Mrs. Waite's cake. 
I will eat the cake. I will eat the bugs. Um, I will sleep in the pod. Anything else from this uh, chapter? Uh, the only other thing I wanted to bring up was there is an infinite chess style uh, news that happened this week, which is that the uh, a Biden administration nuclear waste like director, yes, uh, who's like a um, uh, 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 you know, honestly, the gender doesn't even matter. Let's not. It doesn't yeah, have the to smack only, of the, gender. The, the most relevant thing, thing is that they they took a the only thing worth bringing up that they're non-binary is to aid with the alliteration of the headline. Yeah. Um, Non-binary Biden brass nabs bag. Non-binary uh, nuclear Biden brass uh, uh, Nab- nabbed by like, narcs uh, or uh, uh, bagged by narcs for nabbing bag. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, you know, just a, a, a MIT educated uh, nuclear waste person caught stealing a bag uh, of, you know, listen, it, they said it was a Vera Bradley suitcase. That's a very feminine style of suitcase. That's like a floral, like yeah. quilted number. So like it's giving, it's giving a little, uh, poor Tony. It's giving a little bit of Randy lens and it's giving <laughs> a little bit of MIT, uh, uh, radio engineer. Yes. Uh, and it's Being giving nabbed. nuclear, yes. nuclear, nuclear waste. It's giving Rodney Tyne. Yes. All wrapped up into this unbelievably bizarre little <laughs> news story. Sorry. Twice in one year, they, uh, they got, uh, nabbed for nabbing bags. Uh, that is a. Pr- they promoted it, yes. <laughs> as as uh, yeah. um, t- uh, Don Gately would say. Very, very promoted bis- the back. Very uh, specific form of not narcolepsy, kleptomania. Kleptomania. Uh, that. Listen, I under- I understand stealing as like a compulsion, a, a compulsion because that imagine taking something that's not yours. Mm-hmm. How unbelievably naughty of you and powerful and but, powerful, but, but it's also, also just a thing, and it doesn't. It's not hurting anyone. Yeah. I, that's why, like, I, I would I would say, guess conservatively, seventy percent of women I've ever met had a uh, a, a minor kleptomania phase in their yeah. preteens. Yeah, like around the age of thirteen. The only reason I didn't is because I had too much anxiety, my own <laughs> female problem. But you had the desire to do it. Yeah. Well, I thought about it mostly just being like it'd be nice to have something that didn't cost anything. I definitely did rowdy boy shit when I was a teen, but I never, I had never ever like it never crossed my mind to like steal something i mean we also like emil minty is on his like second strike at the house for stealing an undergarment from the uh uh, trash bag that's on the porch of someone in getting the the shoe the administrative shoe from Mm -hmm. uh edit house so like it is something about just like stealing someone's personal items and going through it yeah just go to a just go to an estate sale wait (laughs) wait until they're already dead stop it she's already dead uh yes, the, that's a very. There's something very novelistic about yeah. that story. It's the MIT that put it over the top. Yeah, I was yeah. like, yes, this is a unsavory Boston character. Hide <laughs> <laughs> yes, your a, a Boston style individual. Yeah, it is. I also my other thing is like I can't believe I think they're like 34 years old or 35. I'm like that seems young to be managing like the nuclear waste. I'm like I would want someone in their 50s. They don't yeah, even remember I, the Cold War. I don't even. I don't know anything about like our our nuclear waste stock. I I kind of imagine that we just put it in a big concrete bunker in Nevada or something. We put it in a barrel and slingshot it over the border yep. into the ocean. Yeah. Hey, also in nuclear news today, apparently that there's been a major breakthrough in nuclear fusion research. Really? Yeah. That uh, which would be the uh, silver bullet to basically save humanity, free, unlimited, uh, wasteless energy. No shit. Yeah. I, I haven't read the story yet. I don't know it. how close close we are. I was thinking about this. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking about this as I was taking a shit earlier. Uh, God, that it, <laughs> gross. But it is. It is like this is the type of thought. It would be like 
obviously it would be the greatest like the if we discovered fusion workable cold fusion and basically had like unlimited unlimited wasteless energy yeah uh that did not pollute yeah like it would be the one of the greatest uh inventions of mankind uh that would pave the way for a like a habitable utopian like possibly utopian future yeah but it would hilariously if we developed it like now or like by 2030 it would be so it, the the grim humor of it is that it would allow us to get away with it to have learned nothing you know to never have uh, actually yeah. changed any of our ways to never have confronted the recklessness of humanity's pursuits and and done something to Con- to confront our own selves yeah. and change things. No, That's you just joke. discover a new technology and everything's and everything's fine. Yeah. And all the f- like fucking like conservative climate deniers could be like, see, it all worked out anyway. Why Ooh, do you yeah. why do you have to make a big deal about it? What what me worry? Yeah. yeah. Ex- like totally. So obviously I'm f- I'm for it. But in another way, it would be like ugh, we get to we get to continue, we get to just, you know, we get to continue our addictions. Yeah. We never have to hit that rock bottom. Yeah. You know? We don't, we don't get, we won't use my preferred power. Wind. Wind. Capture, um, capture the wind. Uh, God's breath. God's breath. Uh, okay. Um. Also, I, I really believe that even if they discovered cold fusion, it would uh, there would be some kind of boondoggle where like oil companies are like, oh, we can't use this until we sell all the oil. Yeah, or you like know? oil companies would like overtake it and be like, this is our power. Now. Yes, exactly. We're Exxon Plus. Exxon and, like, we Plus. We do yeah, we do nuclear shit, and it we're, it's going to cost you a zillion dollars still. Yes, yes. We'll keep everyone in in poverty. Yes. Uh, your bills will still be hella high. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Hopefully, hopefully it comes about, but I'm sure it'll just lead to more fucked up shit in the future. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Yeah. Any more thoughts on this on this episode, my I dear? So. We're almost shocking. We're barreling toward the last hundred pages of real text. Yes. Can you believe that? It's amazing. Yeah. Probably by the end of the year, honestly. Uh, into the last hundred pages. Yeah. Uh, I believe this is something like 109 or 110, episode 110, mm-hmm. and from. Like episode fifteen, just doing like average pacing calculations. I always estimated that this would be about an one hundred and twenty-five episode, yeah, uh, uh, podcast series, and uh, great. It it's looking like it's gonna hit right right there. Sweet. Uh, so we're pro- we're within twenty episodes of finishing this project. Great. great. Uh, I'll have more of a voice next week. Yeah, which is wild to think about. Man, we've been doing this over two years. I know. It feels like no time at all. It does. We've got to figure out what we're going to do next. Yeah, we do. Uh, send us your suggestions. It's getting close to that time. Yeah. Dune, yeah. Dune, Moby Dick. What are some other options that we have? War and Peace. War oh, and that's, Peace. That almost seems impossible. It seems less fun than this. Uh, Gravity's Rainbow. Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah. I've never read that. Have you read that? I did. Well, do you like it as much as this? Uh, not as much, but I did like it a lot. Um. All right. Well, we'll figure something out. But yeah. now's the time to start uh, lobbying for things. If you, uh, <laughs> any of our listeners out there, and, and as always, I we as we've, we're zeroing in on the end of this project, I've been getting more and more, and like big things have been being revealed. I've been getting more and more messages from people uh, mm-hmm. who are like, "Hey, excited that things are starting to wrap up," and it's still uh, always shocking to me that uh, people listen to yeah, I know. <laughs> to this. I know. We went to a DJ party the other week. Yeah, we did. Uh, with a with a professional DJ who fucking killed it, who is a fan yeah. of this pro- project. Yeah, that was that rocked. What was their name? Uh, Aya. Aya. 
Yeah. Uh, I, if you are listening she to this, it was awesome. Uh, your set was great. We had a tremendous time. So Thank good. you for uh, reaching out to us. That place is sick. Um, oh man, yeah, that was the club of my dreams. Yeah, it was. Gr- it was great. Um, so. Uh, thank you to all our listeners. Yes, thank uh, you. But especially to our uh, talented listeners, you can <laughs> invite us to fun events. <laughs> As always, the quid pro quo relationships are the best. Hey, I love I love going. I love uh, you know touching grass and doing things in person. Yeah, we do love doing things in person. I'm not just an avatar. You know? Speaking of avatar, uh, less than one week until we get to see that. Oh, Speaking has anyone of- ever made the joke of Avatar with the accent and it's Lydia Avatar? Uh, I'm sure somebody's done that. So yeah. now we got to watch Tar. It's about we're they about have to, to make her blue, of course. Yes, you make yeah. you make her blue. Yeah. Uh, what if a conductor was blue? Wonder wonder if the Navi had an orchestra. Does the, I was going to say has the Navi ever played their own music? I believe there's some f- some folk music in Avatar. I'm sure that's something that Cameron has thought of. I want Avatar the concert film. Uh, that you know who slightly passed their time, but you know who could have been involved in that? Yanni. Totally. Yeah. Uh, all right. I think that's enough of this. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>